what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. This week we're joined by David Baddiel. David is a comedian, author, screenwriter, TV presenter, and all-round creative. Uh, First came to fame in the 90s, creating many hit TV shows, The Mary Whitehouse Experience, Fantasy Football, Baddiel and Skinner, Unplanned. Directed and written films and plays and a number of critically acclaimed novels. And on top of all of that, I'm delighted to add he's also a patron of Humanists UK. I want to start with uh, a question that might seem very obvious, given a lot of your public work uh, of late. Um, I've often thought that Humanist UK would be nothing without the Jews. We were founded by Felix Adler. We've had um, great Jewish presidents like Claire Rayner and Herman Bondi. Um, But a lot of the Jews who've also been humanists have explicitly rejected um, any notion of their Jewish identity. I'm thinking of people like Miriam Carlin, who was, by the end of her life, the actress Miriam Carlin, who's one of our supporters, was just refused to describe herself as Jewish at all. So you are probably the only supporter of Humanist UK who has as their Twitter bio the one word Jew. Yeah, I'd like to think I'm the only person on Twitter with my uh, bio being the one word Jew. Otherwise, someone's nicked it. <laughs> I've been on Twitter since 2009. If anyone else uses Jew, they've just stolen it. You heard it here. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's obviously, I take it, something that's, in, well, it's obviously something that's important to your identity, but does it also have an impact on what you believe? Um, well, yeah, I think so. Uh, so, okay, to reveal the workings of this podcast, I had a short uh, conversation before we began uh, with you about the fact that I've never really known what the difference is between a humanist and an atheist. <laughs> And I bring that up, we can talk about it later, because uh, despite the fact that I have the word Jew on my Twitter biography, I am an atheist, uh, and this confuses some people. Uh, And when I say I'm an atheist, I personally believe that I am a fundamentalist atheist uh, of a a type, I personally believe that I am much more of an atheist than Richard Dawkins, for example. (laughs) Richard Dawkins describes himself in the God Delusion, as a 7 or 8 out of 10 atheist due to some philosophical conundrum that I don't really understand about how you can't really prove the non-existence of anything. And it's just sophistry as far as I'm concerned. I am, I, I mean, in my play, I wrote a play recently called God's Dice, uh, which is about religion and physics. And, and the atheist, there's a kind of celebrity atheist in that, a female celebrity atheist, says at one point, I don't believe that God doesn't exist. I know that God doesn't exist. Like, I know that stone is hard. Um, and that would be me. You know, so that's what I believe. Although, interestingly, in the play, the idea that stone is hard is later on contested by someone who's a bit of kind of a physics genius, but also a, a believer. And I say all this because I want to make it very clear that uh, to the many people who s- still seem confused on Twitter, I still get asked every so often why I could possibly put the word Jew on my uh, Twitter biography when I'm also an atheist, how that doesn't make any sense, is that uh, for me, 
Jewishness, and I would say for an awful lot of Jews, is nothing to do with believing in God. There's a line in, I, 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 did, I wrote a film called The Infidel, which is, I mean, I've, I've written a lot about religion and about Jewishness, and my film The Infidel, which came out in 2010, is about a Muslim who discovers that he was born Jewish. Uh, but in the musical version of that, there was a musical version of it in Stratford Theatre Royal in 2014, the rabbi in that, at the end of it sings uh, as part of his personal identity. He he sings, I'm actually an atheist like all Jews. And actually, to talk, <laughs> actually if I could, a very quick story. I know I'm talking too much, but uh, anyway, a very <laughs> quick story that bears that out. I was actually asked to light the menorah. Not, I don't think you do it with, with candles. I think it's an electric one. But you to turn on the menorah, the candelabra that Jews light at Hanukkah, there's a big public one uh, near, near where I live. The synagogue wanted me. The rabbi somehow got my number, phoned me up, and met the rabbi and said, will you come and be the celebrity Jew who turns this on? And I didn't really want to do it, so I played my trump card. Uh, I said, actually, rabbi, you know, I'm an atheist. He said, so am I. Which I really wasn't expecting, but it's true. Most most Jews are atheists. Jews, I mean, theologically, Jews have no real conception of an afterlife, which is the whole fucking point, really, of religion. Right. Um, and I've never understood, like, what 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 on earth? Why are you bothering with the whole shebang without that? So for me, Jew is an identity. It's an ethnic and cultural identity, which I feel very strongly. I also have a whole political superstructure as to why it's important to call myself a Jew. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? So maybe we can come on to that because if 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 Jewishness doesn't mean anything to you theologically, what does it mean to you? What what shaping has it had on your beliefs? Political well, is a good place to start, maybe. Well, the the comedy version, I always say, I don't believe in God. I do believe in Larry David, and that can you can insert anything for that. I don't believe in God, but I do believe in pickled herring. You know, my Jewish identity is to do with food and comedy and family and and you know literature and uh, a way of being, and incredibly importantly, anti-Semitism. And that's one of the most important things, because one of the things that is really not understood, uh, I see this very much on social media, is the fact that anti-Semitism is racism. Uh, And the way that you can tell it's racism is by the fact that I'm an atheist and would have been shot by the Nazis anyway. But I note that loads and loads and loads and loads of people, when the idea of anti-Semitism as racism gets mooted on Twitter by, say, me, will start telling me that Jews are a religion and not a race, race and that therefore anti-Semitism isn't racism, it's religious intolerance. And what that is, is anti-Semites trying to downgrade uh, anti-Semitism f- from racism, which is what it is, to religious intolerance, uh, which is a kind of lesser crime and we don't have to worry about it so much. And in fact, left-wing people can get behind uh, the idea that you might be discriminating against a religion because religion is a powerful thing. Right. Uh, but actually, no, if you look at the history uh, and actuality, present actuality of anti-Semitism, it is entirely about who, as an accident of birth, is Jewish. They are the people who get discriminated against by the anti-Semites. Um, and, you know, most obviously in the, in the Holocaust, but in many other things, there was no interest at all by the racists in whether or not that Jew kept kosher, that Jew went to synagogue, that Jew... Right, exactly, blah, blah, blah. you cared about their practice, yeah, no yeah. yeah. About that. It's about blood, and once it's about blood, it's racism. And so therefore, um, I have been more, I would say, in the last 10 years, as I've become more aware of anti-Semitism, not that I wasn't aware of it, but I, I think it's become more prevalent, not just in the UK left, but all over the place as a result of uh, bad ideas spreading on social media and all the rest of it, and economic reasons, all the rest of it, 
I have de- I have decided, and this is the political thing I was talking about, to feel the need to embrace my Jewish identity as a reaction against that to some extent. Right. And I mean, that's quite interesting. Nothing to do with God. No, no, but it, but it is, it is something that happens, obviously, and that people. I, I've known even people who are sort of non-believing Muslims who um, are from Muslim families, and they're, you know, for ethnic, for racial reasons, very visibly in a category that you know people for racism would uh, count them as Muslims, whether they believed or not. Yeah. Um, and 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 even some of them, who are the most unbelieving people, most humanist people that I can think of, have, in one or two cases, taken on Muslim as a sort of political identity. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. How do you feel about that? Because, that, I mean, okay, that's what's happened to you. If you take a step back from it, um, you must also think that that's, you know, less than ideal. How do you mean less? Well, how do you well, mean, you, well, you don't want yeah. to have had to take on that identity, obviously. I, I, didn't have, I mean, that's very complicated. It, uh, uh, truth is in the detail. Truth is about complexity. And I not. it's not the case that the only reason why I... Uh, feel Jewish and would always identify myself as a Jew, amongst other things, by the way. I also identify yes. strongly as British and a man of a certain age and, you know, a Chelsea fan and all sorts of other things that it's mixed in with. But I, I would always have identified as a Jew. I, I came from a very, you know, Jewish background, and part of that Jewishness is always going to be about anti-Semitism. My grandparents were refugees from the Nazis, so therefore I, I was always brought up with a knowledge of this terrible possibility, which actually, you know, some Jew, for some Jews, there's no question, that leads to them erasing their Jewish identity. Many of them, and many name changes and denials of their Jewishness happen as a result of that. It didn't happen to me, and I think that's linked to my truth urge, uh, which is that when felt when I felt maybe subconsciously the sense that I should suppress this because there are people who don't like Jews, I, I would do the opposite. I would run towards that identity, uh, I think. But yes, it's less than ideal, but I think it's as it is, I would say. I mean, I just think that, you know, racism exists in all sorts of ways. I mean, one thing that should be clear about that is occasionally when I've got into, and Twitter is the wrong place for complex discussion, but occasionally when I've put forward what something I've just said to you, which is, you know, uh, I have part of my Jewishness is as a response to anti-Semitism and part of how I see the racism is, as a, is part of how I see that as racism to be fought is to do with that. Uh, people will say, well, why should we base how we think on what the Nazis did or what other races did? And I want to say, because that race and racism only has any meaning because of what the racists do. There's no point in saying, oh, you shouldn't base the way you are on what the racists do, because if, if we could live without the racists, there would be no reason for any of us to have any racial identity. Racial identity yeah. is only a thing because it has to be preserved and protected because racists attack it. Do you see what I mean? I can see that. But that does sort of mean that it's inescapably maybe a defensive posture, a Indeed. defensive mode to yeah. be in. Yeah. It's a defensive posture that... It's a posture that is catalyzed by perhaps by defensiveness. That doesn't mean it's not in some way a celebration. I see. And you do celebrate your oh, own. Yes. I'm very proud, unquestionably proud of being Jewish. Uh, but, I mean, with, with all the caveats that, that involves, particularly with being Jewish, being Jewish is an incredibly self-deprecating uh, way of being um, I've written a book for the Times Literary Supplement called Jews Don't Count. And one of the things I talk about is the complexity of the fact that Jews tend to write very self-deprecating portraits of themselves uh, in, say, in comedy and drama. And that's one of the reasons why it's complicated that Jew 
is still one of the only identities that, n- that non-Jews, as it were, can play. It's one of the only identities that someone who is not a member of that ethnic minority can still play, like Al Pacino in Hunters. Uh, right, right. Al Pacino in Hunters portrays the Jew, it's written by a Jew, of course, in a very over-Jewish, stereotypical way. If he was doing that with any other ethnic minority, that would be problematic. Yeah. A number of times there you've mentioned something that I want to come on to, which is this idea of complexity. Because I think having, you know, uh, obviously watched and listened and and read a lot of what you've uh, produced over the last couple of decades, that complexity might be a concept that's actually quite important to you in the way that you see the world. Yeah, I mean, I believe, in terms of what I believe, uh, I say at the show that I was doing, I think I've said it in every of my recent shows, actually, but the show that I was just doing, which was about social media, was about trolls. Um, I I say at one point, I only have one motto in life. Motto is a slightly small word for it, but I guess what I would mean is kind of guiding principle, and that is the truth is always complex. Uh, and obviously some truths are, are not, but any kind of thoughtful, difficult truth is always complex. And the reason it's in the troll show, I think, is that social media has gone a long way towards eradicating complexity in truth anyway, because it's a very short way of expressing ourselves and it tends towards very binary ways of expressing yourself, very unnuanced ways of expressing yourself. Uh, and it, you know, it mobilizes fringe, angry, uh, extreme, mm. already, already decided opinion, cognitively biased opinion. Uh, and so I, resist that even though i'm on twitter the whole fucking time um and uh yeah i mean it it just seems to me like one of the wisdoms i may have picked up as a result of growing older is that is that there's almost no com- no no truth that matters that is very simple i mean one of them to come back to religion uh is that i um well f- firstly i'm one of the only if I could describe myself as in any way a well-known atheist, it's really not something I'm particularly well-known for compared to, you know, the proper well-known atheists. But I would say I am one of the only well-known people who is an atheist who's from an ethnic minority and Mm. identifies as part of that ethnic minority. As a result, I don't, I have a complicated attitude towards religion. Uh, I mean, and now I do mean religion, uh, which is that I do think that religion has all sorts uh, of, amazing show busy magical crazy things in it i don't think you can know what it means to be human unless you understand the need and desire for religion in people i think there's a kind of poetry and in religion i think all those things i just think it's based on something which is obviously a fallacy right um, but i don't and this is this is related to complexity is it Pardon? do you see religions as providing simplification or as providing complexity well, the urge is simplificationary. <laughs> That's not a word. The urge <laughs> really, you know, my, my belief about religion uh, is that, uh, so, okay, so I'm going to quote my play again. I'm sorry, but it was, it is the okay. I wrote most recently about religion. And, um, although it's based on a real moment, this actually. So there's a bit in the play which describes this atheist book, the opening of this book. But in fact, it's a real thing that happened to me, which is when I was doing The Infidel, Omid Jalili, the uh, comedy actor, uh, is a Baha'i. Uh, and Baha'is, I believe, uh, don't, I hope this is right, uh, believe that all religions are part of one book. It's a very positive religion. But, you know, he's a man who 
believes in God. And we were in a trailer together and he said to me, but don't you want to believe in God? And I said, yes, desperately. That's why I know he doesn't exist. My point being that all humans want there to be a God. All humans want death not to be the end. All humans want there to be a magical dad figure in the sky who chases off death and evil and who, if, they, if they're really nice to him, will make their lives nice. We all want that stuff. Uh, and that's why we've projected it into the skies as a reality. Uh, God is a projection of desire, of the deepest human desire. Uh, and so that's my essential belief about what religion is, that it's, and it is simple in those terms. What religion represents is more complicated, I think. Right. And how it, what it really is, like sociologically, if you were looking yeah, at exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Sociologically yeah. and in terms of politics and power structures and culturally and all sorts of things. And I think the dismissal of it, which I do see in people like Richard Dawkins, is a mistake. I think you have to take it seriously and realise how, how important a cultural and historical force it is uh, and how much I think there will always be a yearning in humans for religion and take it seriously. But that, you know, that doesn't mean you have to give it credence as an actual description of how nature is. Right. So if you were a policymaker, you're taking you're taking you're you're adopting quite a disinterested view there almost. You're a policymaker making decisions about things. Religion would be important in society, so you'd have to take it seriously. That's sort of the approach that you're taking to it. Yeah, yeah. And also there, I I'm saying I there are things I really admire about religion. Right. Uh you know, I do think that, you know, there are great moral truths in religion that they that, that have been come to a lot of the time as it were, through this lie, through this myth. I mean, yeah. you know, there's, there obviously there are the Ten Commandments. I don't know enough about the history here, but the Ten Commandments are, are on the whole, a pretty good way of organising human society. I'm not sure about not coveting your neighbour's ox. I think that's probably... Right. I mean, that is, that, that's, that's, that's true. That is, that is um, a difficult one, isn't it? And in fact, a lot of the, the Ten Commandments are actually quite, quite difficult. I mean, you get a lot of problems honor your mother and your father you know what in all circumstances all the time i know obviously obviously that's where religion becomes incredibly problematic but i i'm you know uh in lots of ways and also the idea that that was handed down by god that's that's the basic problem as well as there being problems in the uh you know lack of complexity in those orders but having said that it's still an interesting thing in a in a primitive human society that this was these were organising principles based on a kind of moral idea of how to treat other people better, you know. And, I think this, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, just which is not to say obviously there was stuff in Greek society and there was stuff in other societies as well. Well, absolutely, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. But they would also have had some religious impulse, would they not? Or maybe not. Maybe, maybe the way. No, not 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 in many not in many cases. Um, I mean, yeah. So I mean, one of the there are obviously religious. Uh, ideas in ancient Greece but even even in many cases politics is separated from religion you know they're seen as being almost almost an analogy of the secular religious divide you know there are spheres in which human beings are carving out their own uh, rules and space and one of those spheres for lots of people was morality you know it was seen as a um, by some people as a um, prudential social convention rather than something that was divinely mm. mandated. Yeah, probably. But it is interesting what you're saying because this, this conversation is one that, I mean, this is by far the more, by far the most about religion that anyone has spoken on, on one of these podcasts. Um, and I, but it is a conversation that I'm noticed is far more likely to, to pop up with 
humanists who are of a, or atheists who are of a, a Jewish background than it is with um, you know humanists who've rejected a Christian upbringing. Well, yeah, also, you upbringing. did ask me what it meant to me. Yeah, Jewish. At the I know, but if I hadn't asked that question, would you still have got onto this topic? You think about religion being a positive generator of lots of things. I don't know if I would or not. I mean, don't over. It shouldn't overestimate that. What I mean simply is that. Uh, the sort of airy dismissal of religion that I read in things right. like God Delusion feels to me to be inadequate in understanding history and understanding, as I say, what it means to be human. Uh, so I, I'm not trying to really argue the case for religion. It's more, in a way, you were right when you went back to a sort of a sort of disinterested policy thing, although that felt right. a bit uber political and civil <laughs> civil servity to me. I just I just mean you you know you have to uh, it's it, it's worth understanding religion as an atheist. That's all I mean, yeah. really. Okay. What What other? I mean, coming back to complexity, what do you think actually are the um, the big barriers today against people understanding how complex things really are? I mean, what are the tendencies to towards simplification? You mentioned that um, in relation to anti-Semitism, a lot of um, the social circumstances that lead people to prefer um, simple, easy. Uh, victims to blame or simple easy narratives but what what what, what do you think the other uh, forces of simplification are well i think primarily it's a kind of narrative one i think people you know that god himself uh, is a narrative idea you know people humans are the only as far as i'm aware species that tell stories in order to order the universe mm-hmm. uh, and storytelling which is my job uh seems to me to be something which requires a certain amount of kind of moral order to it. Like I watched, uh, this is probably not relevant, but it's just in my head. I watched Midsommar yesterday, which is... Oh, chilling. Yeah, but it's also, it's mental film. Mm. And what I noticed in it is at the end of it, the um, boyfriend uh, of Florence Pugh gets burnt uh, in a barn while he's in a bear suit, while he's drugged uh, in the body of a bear that they've taken the intestines out of. And at the end of the film, the last shot is um, Florence Pugh kind of smiling. And the reason for that smile is that he's been a bad boyfriend, really. And we're sort of invited to agree with her (laughs) that this is, like, just. I think we are in that movie. And in a lot of horror films, actually, we're invited to horror. People who reach horrible ends tend to be the people who have sinned in some way. Uh, And that comes back, in a way, to religion, which is that we want to feel that the world is just or has an order and that order is to some extent moral whereas the truth is Mm. the world is entirely random things happen randomly all the time for for various reasons that are always accidental uh, and that always are to do with it's essential chaos to to the world people are terrified of that truth and so they create a simplistic idea of you know right and wrong and you know just desserts or whatever and conspiracy theory is very much part of that so it's fear fear generates this 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 desire for simplicity well i think conspiracy theory is two things primarily i would say uh number one it's that it's it's trying to create order in a random universe so it's it's easier uh, and actually more comforting to think that COVID-19 is as, as a result of evil forces putting phone masks up than it is just a random virus that has incredibly randomly jumped from bats to pangolins to humans and now is erasing our society. Uh, it's much more comforting to think that Spectre, the James Bond uh, bad, is <laughs> somehow behind that, and th- because that means we can defeat it. Uh, but the other reason 
and this is more to do with, I think, the specific people who do it, uh, it's often men. It tends to be men who are not that. I mean, I, I'm this has been quoted quite a lot, but I'm going to say it again. I, I've said in the past that conspiracy theory is how idiots get to feel like intellectuals. And I would stick in general by that, although probably with one or two exceptions. Uh, but anyway, um, it's men who are not very bright and probably in some in various ways feel their status to be challenged. Uh, yeah. I'm talking about basement warriors, white men, Trump believers or whatever, who feel that uh, this is a way of saying, I know something that most of the world doesn't. I have access to secret information. I am James Bond, uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's a way of propelling their own inadequate egos forward uh, to feel you know more important and super-powered. Uh, that, that's what I would say it is. Those two impulses create conspiracy theory. But conspiracy theory is a great simplification of the truth of the world. I mean, I think that's a good formulation. Undoubtedly, people who believe, who well, who believe, who engage with these theories, um, think they're being really clever about it. Yeah. Think they've got a source of knowledge that is hidden from now, you. you watch David you know. Icke, which I have done, yeah, the time. Oh dear, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the the thing that I find most comical about him uh, is the way that he speaks with a with a voice absolutely chocker with a. I have been given this insight and it's uh, so apparent to me and you people out there with your the wool pulled over your eyes, you know, you don't understand. And if you listen to me, you know, you will suddenly see the light. And it's kind of religious from that point of view. But, well, no, I say but, I would say and, because I'm going to use mm. the word, it's got a sort of enormous smugness to it. It's got an enormous stupid smugness to it because it is a person who feels that they are gifted essentially a secret, a special secret, that they are now going to choose to tell the people who come along with them. And it's it's sort of intensely childish at some point. It's Yeah, it's interesting that you're obviously, you've made yourself a student of, of conspiracy theories and you've also got some uh, analogous interest in religion because what you've just said about conspiracy theories is very similar to what a lot of people have said about religion. I mean, Bertrand Russell himself said that, you know, religion had its source in fear because if you if you can't understand the universe and it's incredibly complex and scary, but you bring a sort of simplicity to it by saying, well, it's ordered this way by this by this person. And even more than that, you can appease this person yeah. In the same way that you can, you know, defeat the Chinese to sort out COVID, you know, you can appease um, this god to sort out the weather. Um, it does bring both a, an existential comfort as well as a. Yeah, um, I agree with that. I mean, it is kind of religion is a is a sort of conspiracy theory. It is also what I said earlier, as cons conspiracy theories and religion are a way of telling stories that uh, create story, create narrative to the world. Uh, religion very, very clearly creates. I mean, literally does that. There are books. Uh, there are that tell yes. stories that say this is the proper story of the world. Um, but yes, I mean, it's a way. I mean, the fear thing is interesting because, like, one of the things I'm very interested in, again, with my sort of general, my intellectual generosity, I'm going to call it, towards religion, uh, is in intelligent people who are religious. So, like, Frank Skinner uh, is a devout Catholic and, and, you know, very, very intelligent. And I've never really come across that when I was younger, uh, uh, I mean, I, I say that, I mean, I'd met <laughs> Jews who were obviously clever and who observed, uh, but I didn't think of them as people who devoutly believed. They just observed in the way that Jews did. Mm. Um, and this was really interesting to me. And in my play, In God's Dice, 
you know, it's about a girl, a student, who um, believes that she has found equations that prove the existence of miracles and therefore of God uh, and uses quantum theory to do that. And that comes a little bit out of my fascination with the idea that, that you can be religious uh, and and intelligent, that, that that's um, a possibility. Sure. Uh, but one thing that I don't think is very intelligent, uh, that I still hear some quite intelligent people occasionally say who believe in religion is there are no atheists in foxholes oh yeah that's uh, very annoying yeah. that annoys the armed forces humanists i can tell you <laughs> yeah or the, or the the idea that christopher hitchens might have recanted on his deathbed and what i think about yeah. that is i mean he didn't but it doesn't matter as if as if he would yeah but it doesn't matter for me if he'd rec- recanted whatever the word is if he'd prayed to god on his deathbed when in incredible pain or whatever all that demonstrates is that when human beings are frightened or in pain they turn to magic Right. right. That's what it is. That's right. what it demonstrates. And no humanist or atheist or whatever is a lesser humanist or atheist when in incredible pain. They do that. No, you know, Galileo, you know, uh, yeah. under incredible, uh, you know, was, was he actually, it's probably wrong. Well, did Galileo change his opinions because of the Inquisition, as far as I'm aware? Yes, that's right. He, he, um, uh, took the, the path would, of discretion. Yes, exactly. Because of the Inquisition. And other people obviously did the same thing. And, the Inquisition is the same thing as being in terrible pain from cancer or being on an aeroplane that's about to go down. You know, you're being tortured uh, or you're, you know, you're in incredible fear. And, you know, the human psychology it, it might leap to that, but it is no proof of the existence of God. It's proof of the existence of fear. Yes, yes. Do you, do you find um, the godless universe frightening? Yeah, yeah. That's Do you? Why, yeah, that's I'm why. Talking. That's why when when Omid Lily said to me, "Don't you want to believe in God?" I said, "Yes, said yes. desperately." That's why I know he doesn't exist. Uh, no, yeah. I, uh, well, I would prefer there to be a God because I would prefer. I am. I, I am. Have always been assailed to some extent by mortality. I like life. I really like life. I think it's for all its crapness. It's also absolutely extraordinary and brilliant. And the idea of oblivion, even though I will not be aware of oblivion, from you see that's something I don't agree with. But sometimes atheists or humanists say, "Well, why be frightened of death? Because you won't be aware of it, so it won't matter." Sure, that's Epicurus. Yes, but yeah, yeah, uh, I've been reading quite a lot about Epicurus recently because yeah, I, the that's swerve, good. have you ever read the Swerve? Uh, by yes, it's Greenberg. an excellent book. It's brilliant, isn't it? Um, yeah. And in terms of what you were saying earlier about the Greeks, like the yes. this thing is is so interesting. But that aside, in terms of that idea that you know you shouldn't be frightened of death because when you're when you're dead, you won't know you're dead. I always think, yeah, but I'm alive now, and <laughs> it doesn't comfort you that idea. Now I don't want <laughs> to be in a permanent coma, even though I know that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> And have you ever been unconscious? Have you been knocked out for a hospital operation yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah. So you, you don't find any comfort in knowing that it's like that, being dead, that you will never... No, in fact, I find that no. <laughs> more disturbing because I think that, uh, that you know, you have a sense, I think, of death as, you know, we're told it's a long sleep. I remember being told when I was very young and frightened of death that it was like a long sleep. And interestingly enough, I've been an insomniac uh, ever since. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's precisely it. It's not like a long sleep. That's not the right way of thinking about it because that implies you're somehow conscious of it. Yes. And I think think when I've woken up on a couple of occasions from anaesthetic, the sense that time has not passed when it has Mm. is, is frightening. 
That's what's frightening. Really? Because yeah, because when you wake up from sleep, because you've been dreaming or waking up every so often or whatever, you have a sense that the night has passed and that you've partaken of it. Whereas yes. the the absence of self from any kind of existence that anesthetic creates gives you, I think, a taste of death. And yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it will, I would be completely. This is this is part of my complexity, Andrew. Is it certainly know, is. <laughs> I I am totally able to hold together the cognitive dissonance of being someone who utterly believes, indeed knows, that there is no life after death, that it is just oblivion. And I am frightened. Okay. And I am frightened of that. Well, look, what about this? I'm, I'm going to try now. You, you're, not, you're not consoled by um, the idea of uh, not knowing about it. What about the idea, with another humanist approach to death, that you know, death is the only way that life actually makes sense, right? You, you talked about being a storyteller. You know that a good story has to have an end, um, that for the beginning and middle to make sense and to be enjoyable, you know, it can't, it can't go on forever. Who wants a story that goes on forever with no ending? It doesn't make sense. Um, does that bring any sort of... I agree completely that artistically, death is a brilliant invention. Um, <laughs> death but it's is, not a personal comfort. Exactly, it's not a personal comfort. <laughs> without any doubt, death creates uh, all sorts of story possibilities uh, in human beings. It creates tragedy in itself. There would be no real tragedy without death. And it, cre- it creates an order and structure. It's structure, yes. To our own sense of life and all the rest of it. Still offers me very little personal comfort to the idea of, death i mean it's very complicated this indeed like for example john updike who was a believer again like like if you want to choose intelligent and yet believes in god look no further than john updike who is in my opinion the greatest novelist of the (laughs) post-war time uh and john updike believed in god he was a christian and in one of the early poems uh was it a poem or was it but anyway he talks about death and he calls it the. He talks about specifically the idea of being alive in the coffin, really, uh, somehow alive and dead, kind of shrouding away. And he says the breathless darkness and the narrow house, and that is the problem. I think is that I think it's impossible, uh, as Damien Hirst says in the Shark Thing, the impossibility of death in the mind of someone living. It's impossible to think about death as if it's not you in the coffin, somehow aware of your surroundings. Um, yeah. And I think all those things remain in, a, you know, a head that is frightened of mortality. Really? Yeah. It makes no difference. Yeah. I, can I just say one other thing? I don't need consoling. No, no. <laughs> like oh, no. It's only a, it's only a, um, a personal back, challenge to do so. I don't think you need it. Back to your thing about humanism, uh, to like tell me what it is. So because it might be a humanist idea, this, but I often see scientists, Brian Cox, and I think Richard Dawkins as well. Say, saying, you know, religion is wrong or whatever. And anyway, we don't need it because of the wonder of the world and the wonder of the cosmos, and that's enough. And I kind of think, like, well, maybe, but why do you need to have comfort anyway? Oh, all- I know. I agree with you there. I agree with that. Truth. I'm only interested in truth. And if the world is not comforting in the long run, then that's the truth, and you have to live with it. Don't, don't provide a sort of poetry. I mean, I think those things are marvellous. But I don't think they necessarily comfort me in the against the idea of you know being a speck in the on the way to universal oblivion. I don't think they do comfort me. So I kind of think why that urge? Why that urge? Because at the end of the day, what I said before is the truth, which is we feel the need in God to be comforted against the idea that the world is random and cruel and leads only eventually for all of us to death. So I don't think science should provide a different comfort blanket. 
No. I can see that. I mean, well, let me say a little something about humanism then, since you asked about it, since this is an opportunity. Um, I mean, obviously, atheist is about whether or not you believe in God. Yeah. Either atheists either think there isn't one or that there probably isn't. I'm with you, actually. I'm a 10 out of 10 atheist because I think like, we can look at history and even go so far as to see how the ideas of specific gods were dreamt up. You know, it's so clear that they're, they're just inventions. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's you know, their explanation. Um, but obviously the word humanism is used to describe a certain attitude, um, either building on that idea or sometimes, you know, apart from that idea from people who don't care about the question of God one way or the other, which is that in a in the in the universe that we're in, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no trajectory or direction to this universe. And that meaning is something that human beings create rather than discover. You know, that's quite a fundamental idea, the idea I, I, that... I completely agree with that. It's good because I yeah. am a member of the Humanist Society. So you are, I was going to say. So far, it's going well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good job we don't have any doctrinal tests or, you know, you'd be, you'd be in jeopardy. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I haven't really thought about it before, but now I can see that it's good that I'm a member. <laughs> and, there's a, and there's a humanist idea about morality, I suppose, that's important as well, which is the idea that you know, our our moral sense is something that's in us um, biologically, not to say that it's perfect or that it is, always makes us do good, but that it has a basis in our existence as a social animal and that we build on that through culture, you know, creating laws and codes ideas of right and wrong. There's an evolutionary reason for it, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is so they're, they're the two basic. Uh, if you believe both those things and you also acknowledge that we've only got one life, which sounds, although it's painful, <laughs> you, you're, you're obviously on board with that, um, then that's the basic definition of I'm humanism. I'm not completely on board with that because I do believe. Oh, really? Well, I do believe a little bit in many worlds theory. Uh, oh, okay. Well, that's as, that's that's pretty. Uh, that's of no comfort in terms of your own personal. There's no comfort whatsoever. <laughs> that's Com- okay then. Comfort, as long as you're uncomforted by it, that's that's. I'm, that's I'm not comfortable. comforted, well, perhaps I am comforted by it without realizing it. But I do have. I hold some truck with Everett's theory of of many universes, but uh, that's probably a whole different idea. But I guess what what I wanted to ask you, and I don't want to, you know, make you question uh, your own sense of your good work as a member as, as someone who powers the humanist society nothing you've said makes me think that you couldn't just think those things as an atheist i don't that's yes. what the question was what's the difference oh i see well i mean i suppose well you could think those things as an atheist too they're just and many most you know many atheists do i would you know if you look at um social attitude surveys or value surveys in the uk um, more than half of people so don't. Why are you not called the atheist society? Is it is it partly because, because we're not about atheism? But is it partly because as well humanism does it imply something nicer? <laughs> that's what I'm asking. Do you think that's well? Yeah, I mean that's a that's an interesting charge, and I say charge because it is sometimes used as a charge by, for example, atheist groups in the United States who say, "Oh, what these humanists? They're so euphemistic." You yeah, know. well, I wonder if I'm asking you that question. I am. I, I, it's sort of a charge. Uh, in, yeah, I, I think that purely associatively, the word atheist is quite a hard word. It's used as an insult in the United States, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and and humanist sounds nicer. It sounds like you know whatever else you believe, you believe in sure. humanity. I mean, that may be the case, and I think that probably is true. Um, it's not the origin of the Humanist Association. I mean, the founders of, 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 of the Humanist Association didn't think, let's find a nice word that isn't horrible like atheist. Yeah. Um, although some people, ha- I mean, you know, think the coining of the word agnostic, you know, by Huxley, um, and the calling of lots of 19th century uh, people 
um, of themselves agnostics and their identification agnostics actually is for that reason. You know, they is, thought, how can is. we have something that sounds nicer than atheist? I don't like. I, well, no, I don't. I, I don't like agnosticism. Uh, no, nor do I. I, I, I you see, I don't like the word atheist personally because I I feel it gives, you know, it it seeds too much ground to the whole idea of a god, in my opinion. But then I didn't have a religious upbringing. You know, my whole intellectual development was as a classicist at a university right. and at school, and and so I feel like the word atheist is actually irrelevant to me. I wouldn't describe myself as an atheist because I just don't. I don't even engage in that idea. You know, I don't feel that God is dead or or fearful um, to be adrift in a godless universe because I don't even just that isn't just even part of m- m- my mental landscape at all. So, yeah, I've always preferred the word humanist for that word. reason. I mean, that just is the word that culture has thrown up, and that's probably as a result yeah. of the fact that God is was the power to begin with. So, to state a non-belief in Him required a word that centered around the idea of God rather than a whole series of other ideas. But I mean, I don't completely agree with you there. I, I mean, I think that um, the way that I think about that issue involves quite a complex belief, which I've already outlined uh, about how uh, I, I have all sorts of thoughts about religion and culture and all the rest of it. Uh, that are underlined by an absolute belief stroke fact uh, that God is not an actual existence. And that, for me, is sort of covered by the word atheist. But I, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's obviously important to you. I mean, it's quite clear from everything you've said that the 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 godlessness of the universe is actually really important to your view of things. Yeah, I think think it is. Positively important. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I Also, I think that, you know, insights if i'm allowed to call them that such as believing that god is a projection of desire um and uh, you know i want to believe in god and that's how i know he doesn't exist those do rely to some extent on a difference with what you've said which isn't a, a sort of interest in uh the whys and wherefores of why this myth has happened and why it's persisted which i find myself you know apart from but still thinking about it We've talked, perhaps we could talk just a little bit uh, as we approach the end um, of our time together Yeah. Um, about storytelling, because you're a storyteller. You've talked about storytelling a little bit. You yourself are a storyteller. We've talked about the things that you believe um, make a bad or an unhelpful or a destructive story, you know, the simplification or the, 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 the lack of truth in a story. What's a, what's a good story? Uh, it's funny enough, I can just see Robert McKee, who is uh, who wrote a book called Story, over there on my bookshelves. He's a great uh, story technician, often used by screenwriters and such like. Um, uh, well, that's a really difficult question to cover in a, sh- in a short time. Uh, I, I, I think I have a bit of a yearning for old-fashioned uh, story structure. Um, and so often in... Films, for example. In fact, I've just my friend Peter Bradshaw is the Guardian Cinema critic, and I've just written to him. He always finds this really annoying when I do this. I think he gave Midsummer a five star review, um, and uh, the reason I bring that up is that I actually just said to him before this podcast began that the thing I don't like about it is the thing I don't like about many films that get very good reviews, which is that the directors are clearly extraordinary visual artists with no idea how to tell a story. Uh, which is how I felt about Midsummer and many, many other films that I see, uh, that feel that we are a visual culture uh, and often people who are very, very good at constructing imagery are considered to be great filmmakers, uh, great, you know, 
directors in theatre or opera or ballet or whatever it might be. But that, for me, is not story, even though you can tell a story through images. For me, story is about, you know, often mainly about words and then about the development of character through arcs and through change and through sort of, and this is where I'm old-fashioned, kind of satisfying reversals uh, of, you know, where you think like, oh, I see an unexpected twist that somehow satisfy uh, whatever premises have been set up earlier in the story and all the all the rest of it. And the old-fashionedness is I'm not that avant-garde with all that. I personally, I mean, for example, um, uh, I really liked Arrival. This is I'm just talking about films now, but Arrival, right. <laughs> Arrival was a movie uh, that came out about four years ago and typically didn't get loads of awards because it seemed to be a science fiction film, which it is, uh, about... Uh, these creatures, these huge creatures that appear. Have you seen Arrival? No, I haven't, no. Okay. Uh, it's about these enormous, huge creatures or ships or whatever they might be that appear in the sky. Uh, and a translator is asked to see if they she can work out the language that they're speaking. Uh, anyway, I can't... It would take me too long to... Oh, wait a minute, I have. There's a large hovering... It hovers. It hovers, yeah. It hovers. Yeah, yeah, no, I do yeah. remember this. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't want to go through the... I don't want to precede the plot of Arrival, partly because it's really complicated, which is why I like yes. it. But what I felt when watching Arrival is that... Which is a, essentially a film about how story is told, how information right. happens, how time and your own story are affected by the telling of it, that the ending of Arrival... Uh, actually, better than the Ted Chang story, which it is about. It's by it's by this from an extraordinary short storyteller called Ted Chang. Wrote the original story called I think it's called something like This Is Your Life. Uh, it 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 was described I think by Mark Miller uh, on Twitter to me as the only four dimensional ending to a film he'd ever seen <laughs> in story terms. Right. And uh, again, you know, this might mean nothing to you if you haven't seen Arrival, but the, my point is that. I am immensely gratified if I see something, uh, obviously if I've written something, I am also immensely gratified, that feels to me, particularly in its ending, that it has um, somehow brought all the elements uh, together of the uh, previous story that it was telling in ways that are surprising and satisfying and that say something new about that story or that the thing that it is about another film that does it by the way is coco the animation uh the coco the animation about in terms of what we've been talking about kind of interesting about the world of the dead it's an animation about the mexican day of the dead um and it's about a child who kind of goes into the day of the dead into the land of the dead in order to sort out sort of find uh some stuff about his ancestors that is not true and to sort of retell that truth the final five minutes of that are unbelievably satisfying in the way that they, you know, make the story make sense. So anyway, I don't know if that's helpful for you, but that, yeah, that is helpful. And, I, and particularly, though, I, th- I wonder about what the effect of those stories are on people and, and what you believe that the good effect of a good story is. Because if a bad story makes you think that you know something when you don't and it makes you oversimplify life, what, what does a good story make you make you think? What effect does it have on you? Um, hmm. Uh... Well, there's a part of me, I'm afraid, that would have to answer that as being partly just coldly technical, which is that as a storyteller myself, I 
like it very much when I see a story story crafted extraordinarily well, and I really hate it uh, when I see one that, that isn't particularly one that I'm told is an incredible story, uh, incredible film, incredible TV thing, or whatever. Uh, I so I sort of have just a sort of detached. That's just a technical aesthetic or admiration. Yeah, yeah. I also am very moved. I mean, for example, I don't know if this is helpful. Um, when I was a teenager, I thought I only liked art films. And one of the things about a lot of art films is they often tend to disregard story a bit uh, in a kind of post-Brechtian thing. They're like, it's not important to tell a good story because that's emotionally manipulating your audience in a kind of bourgeois way. And the important thing is, to you know, all that stuff. So I think when I was a pompous, pretentious sort of pseudo-intellectual teenager, my favourite film was Peter Greenaway's The Draftsman's Contract, for example. And then, when I was about 21, for a laugh, to, in order to sneer at it, I went to see E.T., which was on at the time, <laughs> thinking I'll just think this is shit and blah, blah, blah. And I, I cried so much at the end of E.T. that the moment when E.T. says, I'll be right here, I cried and cried and cried and still cannot see that without crying, really. And I, at the time, I think Steven Spielberg opened a dam in my heart. And that is what good storytelling can do. It can reassess your whole sense of self and it can open emotional channels in you you didn't even know were there. David Bedell, complexity, truth, atheism, religion, stories. Thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a really, really enjoyable chat. Thank you. That was David Badil telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. This is the last episode of our first season of our weekly podcast from Humanist UK. We're starting to work now on a second season. It's been great to get your feedback and I hope everyone has been enjoying listening to it. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work of Humanist UK, you can as ever do that online at Humanist UK's website, humanists.uk where you can also sign up as a supporter or join as a member.